Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. All right, go, go, go. I liked my old intro where I just said, welcome to Adagio for things. I'm Bernie Sanders. No, let him go. (laughs) How would you like to deliver it? Hey folks, welcome to Adagio for Things. Oh yeah, it's episode one. Holy shit, we did it. Um, we've got a really great episode for you. Uh, we're starting off with an interview with Ivan Rodriguez, who's a fantastic composer. We talk about how he writes his music, what his inspirations are, uh, what challenges he faces, a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we get to hear some of his newest piece that's being premiered very soon. You can go see it in New York. Uh, and the three of us have a conversation about uh, why we're so attached to hearing opera in a language that we don't necessarily understand. Um, so stay tuned for that. Uh, just to give you an intro, we're your hosts. I'm Will. I'm Spencer. I'm Michael. Uh, and this is Adagio for Things. Buckle up. For today's episode, I sat down with Yvonne Rodriguez. Ivan is a young composer who writes some intensely expressive music. He has an incredible amount to say on seemingly every topic uh, and is a close friend of mine. Ivan was raised in Puerto Rico and from an early age was a composer, violinist, and conductor. Even more impressive, by the age of 22, Ivan had founded and was running his own orchestra in Puerto Rico that was performing classics of the repertoire and championing new music on the I island. I made our staple uh, Puerto Rican uh, cooking jewel, which is uh, sofrito. Oh. With the condiment. And I, w- I was going to bring you some. Oh, my God. But, you know. That would have been too much. No, I mean, I'm going to bring you some. I have, like, a lot. Oh, I'll take it from you. But, you know, if it's recorded, it's, it's a whole mess. <laughs> Got to claim it on taxes. Right, yeah. So, so. No, and it's intense. You need to look, use, like, a little bit. But it oh, it's real hot. It, it's not hot, but it's intense in flavor. I mean, I, I didn't use anything that oh. had any, you know, like. I like intense. It, it's very intense, but it's not hot. Like you, you, it, it's not like fire, but it's very flavorful and garlic heavy. Oh hell yeah! Okay. Yes, yeah, so can you uh, state your name? Oh. Uh, age, height, weight. Age, well, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but my name is Ivan Enrique Rodriguez. I am from Puerto Rico, and I'm 28 years old. See, that sounds good. Yeah. Well, what program are you using to record? Logic Pro. Oh, excuse oh, you. Oh, oh. I would use GarageBand, because, you know, I'm a cheap bitch. Oh, I am, too. I got, like, the student discount that I perpetually have. Is the coffee good? Yes. Yeah. I think it's good. Freaking Whole Foods brand, man. We're sponsored by Whole Foods. Uh, no, are we? No, we're not. No, we're not, 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 not at That's all. so sad. So something that we, we haven't talked about before. Ooh. What was it like growing up in Puerto Rico? Like even something like, what was your house like growing up? What was your neighborhood like? Well, I can only describe this going into the differences that I've experienced mm-hmm. when I come when I came here. Caguas was more of a slower mid-pace. Uh, I studied in, in the Puerto Rican Conservatory 
of music in San Juan and there things are slightly on a higher pace, but still everything is in in a much slower pace than here in New York, you know, or even New Jersey. So speaking of the, the conservatory, uh, how'd you go from being a music student there to being a conductor and like a legitimate conductor? You were running a group of well-trained musicians to play real music in front of real people. That happened while I was studying in the conservatory and it happened kind of all at once because I started working with the with the with the Powell's Association. Um, How old were you? Oh my God, twenty two, twenty three years so, old. So, so you just finished college or something? Well, when no, or were you still in school? I was still in school because I started my bachelor's in violin performance, and I did one year there, and then I switched to composition. So then I did. The other. Oh, uh, so did you have to start over when you switch majors? Well, I I need to start over the whole composition uh, mm. coursework, but the other coursework I finished early because I did the first year of, of everything else. So I was like twenty or twenty one something. Wow. Uh, twenty to twenty one years old when I started everything in, uh, as a conductor in Puerto Rico, uh, and I had this friend. Uh, who also was a violin player, and his mother was the one running this association, this organization, right? And they usually did kind of like a scholarship concert for different students, music students, and the winner of the scholarship had to play a new piece by the end of the of the year uh, as a the big, nice concert in the end, and to, to give them the award that was the, the final thing. That year, won a flutist, a violinist, and a cellist. And I was like, well, okay, a triple concerto. Yeah. <laughs> right. That, that makes sense, right? So I wrote a triple concerto. And when we were writing, when I was like finishing writing, I told her, well, I'm almost finished. I'm writing this triple concerto kind of piece or whatever. And she said, excuse me, what? Like a triple concerto for the winners and orchestra. And she kind of freaked out, but then she Wait, got... Wait, was there no orchestra line? By that point, no. Oh, no. So then she got super freaked out. So only 75 more musicians than she was thinking. Well, about <laughs> it was a 120-piece orchestra, so a lot more. <laughs> so uh, we ended up... Uh, she, she was freaked out in the beginning, but then she loved the idea because she wanted to make that oh, okay. project happen and maintain that orchestra as a... Uh, as a, an opportunity for different young musicians to start in the business world right after the studying in the conservatory. Because the problem in Puerto Rico is that the orchestra, the National Orchestra uh, of Puerto Rico, the PRSO, it's run by the government and it's the only orchestra in the island. So people graduate from the conservatory, maybe they go outside, you know, mm-hmm. abroad and study something, you know, further their studies in their instrument and they come back to the island and yet they can't have a, a, a job in the orchestra because all of the positions in the orchestra are until you retire. And oh, there are wow. a lot of, you know, it, the orchestra is full. So when one position opens, everyone is auditioning for that position. And if you're not a string player. Right. If you play like oboe or yeah. trumpet, it's like you're A job waiting. comes up once every 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. Or more. Skipping ahead to, to your orchestra. 
Yeah. How old was the average player in your orchestra? Was it for students specifically? Was it, it was it, it was a mix. Young students professionals? And, yeah, it was a, a students and, and, and professionals. Uh, we also had collaborations from the PRSO. They also came, oh. some of the musicians came to the orchestra when we needed like something extra for some something bigger or anything. But it was an average of 18 and above, I would say. Oh, um, wow. 18, something, because... Uh, if, if we had like this network of we call it Escuela Libre de Música or Free Schools of Music in Puerto Rico, and that was a project that was created uh, as a, a bill that passed uh, as a law, and it was a network of schools that were supposed to feed the conservatory, prepare students in music, feed the conservatory, and then the conservatory was supposed to feed the orchestra. Mm. So we took students, advanced students from those schools, as well as, as the conservatory and professional musicians that already graduated but didn't have a job, you know. They mm-hmm. were only teaching. Actually, that was the only, you know, future you had in Puerto Rico. You either study a lot, you play a lot, you go out of the island and you do your career, or you just stay in and, t- and teach. This sounded like it was kind of your baby, well, it was my baby. I, I was very young. So right. I so saw you, it, you were a baby and it was your baby. But. Right. And I saw it like as this uh, thing that I'm just doing because it's it's it makes sense. So it, to you, it was just another thing I'm doing. Meanwhile, it's this incredible thing that people don't usually do at that age. Right. And, and I mean, I'm not boasting, but. When Boast I, away. No, I mean, I was so young and yet I had that time, enough time that it, it, it was just something that made sense, you know? Yeah, do that. and Of course I'll start an orchestra. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, did you, were you making programming decisions? Like, yeah. Obviously this is a decision-making process that involves a bunch of people, but right. you were essentially programming the season, like as a music director. Yeah, kind of. yeah well, basically that, we, we try to also to include as many mu- new music as possible. And uh, to include as much of uh, opportunities for performers mm. to play as soloists, because the whole idea was to, as students, and, and I saw many of my colleagues preparing this gargantuan concertos just for their end of the year jury. And they just play that like... Play two once, minutes. yeah. Two, not, not oh, yeah, minutes. you don't get to play the whole thing. Right, right? you just play but two minutes. But it could minutes. be any two minutes. <laughs> any two minutes, so you need to know the whole thing. And you just play two minutes, and yet you know the whole songs, violin concerto, or the whole Sibelius concerto, or Rachmaninoff. So the whole idea was to give them the opportunity to actually perform. So when all of those uh, financial problems started to kick in, uh, we were actually preparing... Uh, Rachmaninoff second concerto, piano concerto. And we obviously we couldn't prepare that concert. We had to cancel that. But we finished the, the season with one commission that uh, the association gave gave to me. Uh, to you? Yeah. Oh. To, uh, to close everything. We, we, we didn't have strings in the orchestra. So everything was just so barely working because we didn't have any money. Wow. We only had the... the so you were a band, essentially. We were basically a band. We were basically like... Uh, uh, woodwinds and brass section and percussion and because of that they gave me a commission because we didn't have like repertoire for that specific and so because you can do band but you don't have enough instrument to do like something for band 
but you can't do orchestra because you don't have the strings. You, you have like a very weird ensemble. It's like a rock band. You ran out of covers. Right. So, <laughs> so we got to jam on something. In the end, they did this homage concert to a very, very great choral compo- conductor that we have in Puerto Rico. And they commissioned me something. And I said, well, we, if we have that ensemble, we could use the Puerto Rican National Choir. Wow. And two soloists. And then that will fill in the gaps of the strings and have something, you know, that can truly close all this, you know, endeavor. And that's where I, I composed Ars, Lux, and Veritas, which was hmm. the last thing that the orchestra performed. You've got some pretty beefy pieces in your catalog that I was looking through. Oh, God, no. What do you mean by beefy? No, I just mean you have... A symphony. In there, oh well, yeah. Well. Which is something you don't always see nowadays because people are, you know, I wrote a fifteen-minute single-movement piece of music because that's what when you're, you know, under forty-five, you can convince <laughs> people to play. So was that just like inspiration struck, or do you think that you should always just be kind of writing to what is? Uh, necessarily commercially viable or what's being asked for but if you're working on something it's because it's an idea that you're passionate about i can answer this with a a a little lecture that i went to listen uh martin bresnik oh yeah and he was talking about that about commissions and performances and writing and what should composers do etc and he said well if i don't get uh half of the money you know, as a, as a deposit, or if I don't know if people won't pay me or will pay me, I won't write a single note. And, you know, mm. that bothered me because if you go into music for the money, you're being a fool. You know, if you, yeah. it's, it, you don't go, you don't take this path because, because you want to make money or because you want big things, you know? I, I actually, I once had somebody tell me, uh, I guess it's actually a secondhand story because I think someone else told them this. Uh, but uh, it was like the first day of the new composition majors coming in. A kind of a mixed music program, not like a big conservatory or anything. And the guy said, okay, so who has another hobby that they really love to pursue and it's something that they enjoy? They raised their hand and he said, okay, go do that. Right, exactly. And then he continued to just say, if there's literally anything else that you can envision yourself doing, doing that's what you should do. Right. Not in that composition isn't a worthwhile pursuit. He was just saying the people who can really make a go of it are the people who it is the only thing that they can see themselves doing or do at that level. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and that, that's why when, when Martin Bresnik said that, it was kind of shocking to me because... We talk of music because it's art. We mm. talk of a music, you know, it's art. And you don't do art because you want to profit from it. Mm. You do art because you need to. And then you profit from it, yeah. you know? On the flip side, and I'm, I suspect this might be where he's coming from with that. Although, who knows? I, I, don't, right. I don't really know the guy. There's something to be said about the people who are asking for your work to respect it and consider it legitimate which money aside i know a few people who their kind of policy is even if the person i'm writing this for the project i'm writing this for is small and doesn't have a budget or something like that they still require compensation yeah even if it's you know 
a bottle of scotch or something yeah. like that, they still say, okay, but you have to give me something in exchange because this is me. I'm well, and there's a theory in economics where they say that you you should always charge a little bit, even a little bit when you when you offer something as free. Free tickets don't sell. Don't sell. Mm -hmm. When you offer even $2.97, they will buy them because they find it cheap or approachable, but but it has a value. You know, sadly we confuse in our world, in our capitalist world, we confuse value with price. Before putting a price a price can be a commission before writing something or a price can be a rental or you're selling mm -hmm. your parts or uh sell a performance or, or or something when you need to write something it only has value it doesn't have price yet mm -hmm. i am so sorry but you cannot call yourself a composer if you will never write a note without thinking in money mm -hmm. first you know so that's why maybe you know i have quote-unquote beefy compositions that have never been premiered yet you know i'm still 28 maybe they will be premiered soon or not or whatever but i wrote them because i had to my symphony was part of this transition when i moved from from puerto rico to to florida and from florida to new york but it was something that kept me sane number one and number two something that that i really needed to do We have a definition for symphony and we have a meaning for symphony. <laughs> It's just a piece of music, yeah. you know. I just had to sit down and I wanted to write this piece and it started one way and then it kept on developing and then I don't know how many months later I had a 50-minute piece, mm -hmm. you know, so. Did you say one five or five zero? Five zero. My God. <laughs> I think it's fair Four. to call that beefy, well, I, regardless well, of what we're talking about well, at a again, deeper level. Again... I'm not boasting, but it's for chorus, large chorus, ideally 250 to 300 people, uh, large orchestra, like six horns and mm. stuff, uh, four uh, soloist singers, and the orchestra. Go big or go home, man. Yeah, I mean, and all of this comes from from the culture that, that has developed in, in the classical music world for whatever reason. And I, and I would say this is a mentality that people in the classical music world have uh it's just unaccessible you know and then for example i went to the i think it was in the beginning of summer to do you mean the music itself or the experience like getting to listen to the music is inaccessible uh like being able to go hear it is inaccessible or the music well no is... it, the, the classical music people mm. think the music itself is inaccessible the people mm. outside think that going there or being in that environment is inaccessible yeah but i remember, and I don't think either one is true no but they are profiting from that because because since it's so inaccessible you'll have to pay to be read mm. you know and you have to pay 150 a ticket right exactly but i, I remember which I, in some cases that would be inaccessible but what people don't know is that it's oftentimes not that but exactly. i think that they do well with this image that it's, yeah the elitist thing that it's so high art and so you know, uh, philosophically conceptual that you have to pay that amount of money. But I remember by the end of summer, uh, the New York Phil was presenting Barrio Sinfonia and the hall was packed. Mm -hmm. The hall was packed. And, and that was a crazy concert. It was, did you go? Yeah. Yeah, I, I went was, too. It's Barrio Sinfonia and Strauss uh, Al uh, Alpine Symphony. Yeah. Obviously people went to see Strauss 
because they you know think? that. But they also went to see Barrio, and the people who didn't know Barrio, or they thought that they didn't know classical music as uh, as much. I went with my husband, and even though he likes any type of music, and he loved Barrio Symphony, you know. Yeah. So that's that's the thing that we are underestimating, and people are profiting from us and from others, you know, from the audience and from the composers. We're bringing up every problem with classical music today, <laughs> and we're going to fix them right here. <sighs> we know each other pretty well, and I haven't heard you, like, say anything really about this yet, so I, I have a sneaking suspicion you're kind of holding it in because it'll just set you off. Boom, boom, boom. What was... Uh, I don't even know how I should even ask you this. On a scale of 1 to 15, just to give you some extra headroom, how pissed off are you about the United States treatment of Puerto Rico after the hurricane? You remember the lady that gave me the commission that started the orchestra with me? Mm-hmm. She died in the in the in the hurricane. Uh, I didn't realize that was her. I remember you telling me about that. She died because of, of the lack of attention uh, and, and the lack of, 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 you know, response that the United States had. We also don't have to talk about that. No, I, no I want to talk about it because I think, I think it's worthwhile regarding the, the classical music world. And the things that happen in the head of someone that is a non-white composer. Mm-hmm. I am a Latino composer, although I am a U.S. citizen. I am brown-skinned. I have curly hair. Being basically the complete opposite of the norm in the classical music world often makes you think twice of whatever you're going to say outside of your mm. private circle. Because just by being... But by not being a white composer, I have to work exponentially harder to get to to a a, a, a position of, of performance or career, mm-hmm. you know, further in their career. Uh, so you don't want to say anything that will detract from that. As as composers, we we have an inherent dependence with colleagues and performers, and you need to have a good relation. You have to create a big network to further your career. And if you say something that doesn't align with their view or they disagree with you, it, it might be very professional or, or very stable. That, that doesn't mean that people will hate you, but they will think of others when it comes to commissions or, or asking for... Hmm. for you want, you want to, to reduce the margin of error. And sometimes that's why, as a non-white composer, sometimes I don't speak about stuff hmm. in that public sphere because I'm afraid some people that might have a more conservative uh, viewpoint than myself might think that what I'm saying it's out of place and then that's, you know, minus one opportunity for getting a job. Yeah. yeah. So you mean, if I'm hearing you right, that you feel like it's easier for people to take what you're saying as being preachy or kind of whiny wrong, or, whiny or yeah. wrong-headed or something when in fact you're just saying how you feel about something that you have experienced. Um, yeah, well, in, in, in which the other side is responsible because we were talking, for example, the hurricane response from the United States, the federal response, and it was it was 
horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it was beyond horrible. It was. You uh, know, I had friends that died. To describe it as horrible or a catastrophe, I feel like makes it sound like an accident. And you know, honestly, it's it was so. From my perspective here, it seemed almost militantly ignorant of how bad things had gotten. Well, it, it was it was it was disastrous. You know, mm-hmm. my my mother like three days ago. Uh, lost the the electric energy again, you know. So it's been, it's it's almost going to be a year, I think. Or yeah, I could extrapolate yeah. them. Some some percentage of the of the population, mostly the older one, must have thought that the lack of response was justified. In in any way, you know, they wow. you know, they they must have think it was justified or it was enough in within the powers of of the United States. That's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there you have the younger generation that it's infuriated. You know, it's completely infuriated because they lost people. One or two months ago, they did a, a protest in, mm-hmm. in front of the Capitol House in Puerto Rico where they put like 4,000 pair of shoes wow. in front of there to depict the people who died because it was on the government. You know, mm-hmm. th- that happened because of the, we were talking not just because of the passing of the hurricane. The lack of energy, the lack of, of, of yeah. food, people who were in in hospitals and stuff. They, yeah, all of those people died. I I remember reading. Uh, yeah, like sometimes it gets played down. It feels like saying no, that number can't be right because it did. They didn't die in the hurricane. It's like just because you didn't die in the hurricane by a flying piece of wood in right. the wind does not mean that that well, death wasn't caused by it. I I remember reading. Uh, in the news that th- the morgues could not refrigerate the bodies mm. so they had to 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 do things with them to in order to because they were decomposing so we have an approximate number of deaths but it's definitely it's it's hard to to count yeah or, or to you know have a, a specific number because of that so there is a younger generation that definitely thinks that their response the overall response it's completely unjustified uh, and you know, just plain bad, you know. And mm-hmm. there's the older generation that thinks that it's it's fine, you know. Just the same uh, uh, divisions or, or, or separations that we have here politically, they they happen in Puerto Rico. You know, we have the Puerto Rican Republicans that mm-hmm. think that everything was fine and their response was fine, and everyone else. Do you think that? political ideas or those sorts of intangibles are are things that you can actually interpret or express musically and do you do you try to ever political ideas i don't think so but more with in non-texted music i mean obviously uh yeah yeah well not not political but yet definitely things about justice for example as as i told you in, in one of our correspondences looking back at my catalog, I can see that I've had different stages of, of composing. And it's definitely inspired and guided by my experience outside of Puerto Rico. Because in Puerto Rico, I saw myself as normal. Outside of Puerto Rico, I see myself as abnormal. You know, I don't look like everyone else. And I have an accent. You Do know. you... Is this something that you think about in terms of... I feel this way, and I know that I shouldn't, but because of the circumstances, I it is something I feel that I'm dealing with it? Or do you actually feel that way just directly? And, and Well, you know, as a thinking person, 
if you're going to evaluate things, you know, you just know mm-hmm. that you shouldn't be feeling that right. way. But when, because of that experience, it, it started happening in, in my musical narrative. You know, I started writing things that were inherently more frustrated and, and charged with mm-hmm. that experience. For example, I remember one of my teachers recommended me to just use English titles. If I wanted to to have better odds to win in competitions and stuff, I should use titles in English oh, because people understand them that better. That is the but, total backwards way to look at that, I think. But this is the things that, you know, diversity people like me have to think about. I know that that teacher is not coming with an ill-intended advice. Right. It's coming from the goodness of the exactly. heart of that person. But then that lack of off-the-bat understanding also must feed into that frustration. It's the unchecked bias. Mm -hmm. You know, that unchecked bias of do this this way because it would be better for you instead of let's just check what's happening because it's harder, you know, check what's happening in the overall arch of the classical music world and why are we dismissing non-English or Spanish-sounding stuff because we don't understand it instead of just do an effort to understand Mm -hmm. that... We just make them change because it would be the easy way around. Although I understand it was a, a an advice, a, a, a good intended advice, it hurts a lot because you need to change something or you need to adapt something that is an inherent definition of your existence. You know, I, I see. I ex- find that so. I one thing I find really interesting about that is I would think that your titling and the thematic elements of your music would be something that really sets it apart and kind of shines a light on it because even on the most surface level it is literally the first thing i noticed about your music was there's a giant title page with the title in spanish in big bold print and i went oh hey look the title's in spanish it's different from everything else i've encountered and that drew me in and then on top of it, the music's really good oh thank you but (laughs) so it's so interesting that it could in some way hold back progress or create the perception that it is something that could hold back. But it's it's at the very least interesting that uh, this like this specific venue of, of classical music is that directions in another language aren't something that these people are unfamiliar with. There's Italian, German, and French. We don't play anywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> we don't play anywhere the sea. We play la mer. Yeah. You know, we don't play uh, sir... Juan or Mr. Juan. We play Don Juan, you know? <laughs> we, we, we we don't play Mrs. Butterfly or Miss Butterfly. We would play mm-hmm. Madame Butterfly, you know? And it's fine to translate stuff. I don't... It's fine. I want people to understand, and I will right. translate. It, but you shouldn't knock the composer for not just putting it how they would naturally put it. Or, or even, let's go philosophically even further... Put on the shoulders of the composer the responsibility of altering something that is inherent to him Mm. for the understanding of others, you know? Because if I am creating something, I will create it in me as I am. And when I share something with you artistically, I want to share that part of me. You know, I don't want to share something that is altered in any way for for the furtherance of business or in general, you know? And again, I know that it's not ill-intended. 
But because of that, in my new stage of composing, I've written three pieces with their titles in English. But those three pieces are of protest. And if I am going to write in English, because I am also inherently bilingual, I want you to understand the process that I am feeling. Mm. I wrote Alabaster Thread, the, the art yeah. song that is about the racial disparities, the new orchestral piece that it's called White is a Metaphor for Power. Tell me if you're not gonna understand that. <laughs> and the third one that it's almost finished is a piece for solo cello, an essay called On Being. And it's a, a, an essay, a personal musical essay about what it is for me to exist. So every musical motif in that composition, it's based on my national anthem, the Puerto Rico wow. national anthem. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. It's almost done. It's supposed to be premiered in November. <laughs> oh, I just realized we have to talk a little bit at least about the piece in September. Right. The Stolas. September 20th. Right. Yeah. Uh, So can you just tell me a little bit about the piece? Not necessarily just the part, the movement that's being played, but maybe the thing as a whole, because it's a work in progress, right? Yes, it's still a work in progress. It's called Epistolas or Epistels. And it's a collection of 10 musical letters to different feelings, concepts, or emotional things. So you're sort of, you're addressing... A personified yes. emotion. I see. I'm addressing that personified emotion as a first correspondence or as a answering their first oh, letter. Wow. You know, it depends on. So musically, you are kind of going, dear anger. Yes, or, exactly. Yeah, what are they? Yeah, the 10 letters are to addressed to. I have them here. Looking through the phone. Oh my god! Desperately. And I have I I took a photo because I wanted to bring it with me to to Julia to keep on writing. I know it's here. Yes. Okay. So they are addressed to purpose, inspiration, loneliness, fear, sacrifice, uh, rage, nostalgia, passion disappointment hmm. and death and they how are how did you choose those i cannot walk you through the whole process but i do remember that i really wanted i started with purpose first of all i wanted to write like a substantial piece for solo piano that whole piece is for solo piano and i was in a dark place and i was doubting purpose and i thought well i've been doing this my whole life it's it, mu music has merged with me now i feel that it's so hard to achieve you know the, the achieve like a career wise you know because of what we were talking earlier mm -hmm. you know it's it's so i started out in purpose and then when i when i i wrote purpose in in my notebook and then i thought well what's linked to that and to my experience inspiration because to achieve that purpose i need inspiration and How do you do all of that process? You do that alone. So that, mm. that it's, that's why third, the uh, loneliness came in. So it's a progression of ideas. It, it was really complete cool. progression of ideas. And then I... I is I purpose the, the movement that's being played in September? Yeah, purpose is, is the, the movement that's being played. And it's 
addressing purpose for the first time you know like you you know it's been with you the whole your whole time but you're you're writing that entity a letter an angry letter like, wow like you're like oh you you promised something you're lying how appropriate this is literally <laughs> a piece where people can get a, a window into what drives yes. a musician yes which ones are you do you still have to write i have to write passion uh, disappointment and death. Those are the three that... that oh, so the easy ones. The, e the totally easy ones, <laughs> the very lightweight, you know, very meaningless, completely, you know, simple. Mm. Um, something I want to ask different people. We ended up talking a lot about music today. But, yeah. Oh, well. Um, what's your favorite non-classical piece of music? And it could be anything, but not for classical stage music, ballet, or opera. Wow. That's so pop, rock, jazz, anything else counts. Oh, my God. Jesus. You know, I kind of like 80s music. Yeah. But Bolton. Michael Bolton? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, that I love. Uh, if my husband listens to this, which I know he will, I do enjoy, you know, kind of more of the greedy, savagey kind of rock music. I remember once he invited me and, and I said yes, you know, very reluctantly to a Nightwish concert. Oh, and okay, we're going to be here for three more hours. <laughs> and I was screaming my lungs out. Well, see, that has a tie-in to your world also. <laughs> Did they still have the opera singer when you saw them? No, oh. but I do know Tarja's. See, what's funny, I had the opposite little journey with them because I... That's another band I like journey. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was in the rock world. Right. And then uh, I had started taking like music theory and orchestration. Right. And my roommate was really into Nightwish and was right. like, you should come with me to this concert. So as I was migrating my way into classical music, I heard this band who right. has like full orchestra and an opera singer and right. also like crazy distorted guitars. And right. So I, I, I kind of grew up, you know, when I grew up uh, teenage years, I was very into Nightwish and, you know, my chemical romance and... Oh. Uh, my husband introduced me to Therion, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. But if you ask me now. And you know, it doesn't have to be something you listen to like constantly, just something that when it turns on, you're like, I love that. Oh, song. my God. J and K-pop. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Please be edit sorry. this out. No one's allowed to be sorry for things they like. The main issue that defines music as good or bad is if you like it or not. Well, that being said, Agreed. things can suck. Yes, <laughs> things can be poorly done, but you can still like them even when they're poorly done. I'm I'm gonna say, So Hyang, and I and know I'm destroying that that pronunciation. She's a Korean singer. I love her. Uh, any anime intro <laughs> or outro, I love. Uh, Are you a big anime fan? Oh my! Well, oh my god! Oh, there's some really interesting stuff. I'm not a huge 
anime person myself, but I've seen enough to kind of well, I, you know I, know my way around. I can only remember like the mainstream ones, but we we've seen more obscure ones that are like extremely fantastic. But also, it reminded me that we are visual animals, you know, and and things will always come to our head visually. That thing that people oh no, if you put visual cues or you reduce music to the visual you're you're doing a you know you're destroying the whole thing no and music does not happen in a vacuum it will always happen because of an input you're writing because you want to say something and that something that you want to say came to you through language and experience and all of that can be materialized visually so you're expressing something that came to you through those senses. I'm not going to top that. <laughs> <laughs> that was very well put. I think that might be where we leave off. I can't wait to hear this piece. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank and you for inviting me. I had a blast. Yeah. Our first ever guest, if they're released in this order. but. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again so much to Yvonne Rodriguez for sitting down with me uh, for that interview. We spoke for about three hours uh, uh, outside of the interview that you just heard. Uh, so there was a whole lot to talk about. And maybe at some point we'll post some more of it so that you can hear it. Uh, just so you know, if you're interested in any of the music that we talked about in our interview or any of the rest of the music mentioned in this episode, we have a Spotify playlist for each episode that we release so you can listen to any of the pieces we mention. Just follow us. Loudbox is our account on Spotify. Again, be sure to visit IvanRodriguezMusic.com to check out all of Ivan's music. And don't forget to stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear the brand new recording of Epistola Number 1. It's being premiered September 20th at the Domena Center here in New York as part of an event called The Ear, a Classical Reboot. It'll be played alongside 10 other brand new works by living composers. The hosts of this event say, if you've been wanting to get into classical music but don't know how, this is how. It'll incorporate comedy, audience participation, and of course, classical music, so it's right up this podcast alley. Tickets can be found on Eventbrite, or for more information, you can visit Yvonne's website, ivanrodriguezmusic.com where you can also listen and find out more about all of Ivan's music. Not yet. Not until we're done, for some reason, quoting Backstreet Boys in the middle of a classical music podcast. All I want to do is it's classical music. I mean, we've already got a Korean pop singer and Michael Bolton in the playlist just from my interview. So, Spencer, why don't you... Uh, <laughs> you bring us into what we're talking about. You know what? Hold on one second, because there was um, there was an article that maybe. Damn it! Where the fuck is it? This is not a good reading series. I should have been more prepared and had this ready to go. Episode one's going to be about the mobile <clears throat> browsing experience on wqxr.org. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me start with this. This is, this is from Fred Plotkin on WQXR. Italian is most accommodating for the voice because the vowels seem to be an extension of speech. Consider Luciano Pavarotti and Joan Sutherland in Rigoletto. I want you to listen to how natural the vowels sound, and there's a hyperlink to that, especially in the much-repeated word adio. The ah, 
the E and the O of audio are perfectly ensconced in Verdi's music. So my question always when people talk about diction and which languages are best suited to singing mm-hmm. is what does it matter if you don't know what the words mean? It's a good point. There is another, it might have been that same article. Essentially, they were they were talking about how no matter what uh, the performance is like, you're never going to have as immediate an experience as when you can actually understand what the fuck the singers are saying. Is <laughs> essentially how they put it. By being like, if you have to raise your head and lower your head every three seconds at the Met to look at the back of a chair in front of you so you can read the little mm. text coming up on the screen, you're not going to be as invested in it. Right. That is probably the least natural way to read a story. Like if you were going to read a a Shakespeare play, but you could only read it off of uh, a pager and you had to read the entire thing off of that little, that little screen, you say, but why don't you like opera? It's all, it's all there. See, this is, I'm a little biased because I watch all of my television with closed captioning on. So I'm very used to watching it and reading at the same time. But the ex- the experience of hearing something in English and watch and and reading in English at the same time is totally different from the experience of hearing a foreign language that doesn't actually hold meaning for you and mm. and deriving your entire understanding of the story from the text. That's true. I think that's true. Do you think it kind of like it turns the opera itself into just underscoring for this weird reading experience you're having. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I was just trying to kind of sum up what you well, my, my experience is that I, when I'm seeing an opera that I haven't seen before, I'm reading and I stop paying attention to the music. And then I'm paying attention to the music and I, I stop reading. And I just end up reading the synopsis and, and trying to figure it out from there. But I, I find mm-hmm. it's just impossible to follow. Now, maybe that's just the mistake of going to see music live that you don't know. Because, of course, your experience is always going to be better seeing something that you do know. I, I find. True. Yeah. Well, hmm. well, here's the question, though. What about a scenario? I do. I agree. I think that the more connected you can be the audience, the better question though if you were listening to an opera in english and it was hard to understand because i feel like sometimes it's not always the easiest to catch all the words mm-hmm. would you recommend having english subtitles yeah i think if you can have english subtitles with the english mm-hmm. then it's just something to reference and reinforce and sort of put a finer point on the articulation that gets lost when you're singing but it can be relegated to your periphery. It doesn't have to be the focus. Unless your text setting sucks. <laughs> well, yeah. That Unless sucks. you can't understand what the damn words are. <clears throat> uh, but act, I mean, at a certain point, dramatically it matters what they're saying. But musically, mm-hmm. I mean, half the time when I hear a record or anything, I, you know, I don't hear what the lyrics are in the first listen i don't really know what's going on um i went to see the the exterminating angel last year the thomas addis opera i really loved it for the whole package because it was kind of this very meta bizarre experience that being said even though it was in english 
I still found myself having to double check a lot of the times with the the little teleprompter. Oh, they have the teleprompter going in English? Yeah, even though it was in English, Uh you could still have it up on the back of the seats. There was something to be said for hearing familiar words and being able to basically get the gist that even that little amount connected you to the opera itself a little bit more. Mm. What was that about? But it's based on this old movie about a group of people after an opera who have a dinner party and then they can't leave. Oh, yes. And there's like no reason for it. It's Mm. literally just mysteriously they cannot leave the room. But were you able to walk away following the story? Oh, totally. Understanding all of it? Yeah, I mean, as much as you can understand that story. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it ends with, like, the front door of the house pivoting around and devouring the audience or something uh, like that. Spoiler alert. So, yeah, I'm sorry. We ruined, you know, J.J. Abrams' <laughs> next project for everybody. <laughs> oh, I would totally see a J.J. Abrams opera. That would be really cool. I, I don't know I don't know why those, those uh, opera movies uh, from the... I guess they were all done in the 80s. Oh, all the... What's his name? Um... You know what I'm I think about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. but the, but they were they were they were movies, and I mean they were they were filmed on a set, and you know they they looked okay. They it's coming. But they, it's coming. They were they were <laughs> they were engaging. They were engaging, and the performers were good. And if you could have gotten, I think if they were done now, they they would be so much better. Oh yeah, I mm. mean most movies made now are kind of well. I shouldn't say that most movies now are better, but. I feel like we have very no, different th- sensibilities about what we expect in terms of quality. Everything mm. now is better than the 80s. The 80s was a horrible decade. It was a dark age. Wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, I agree. The Goonies? I, oh, I hate the Goonies. I don't Are like, you kidding I don't like me? the Goonies. I despise the Goonies. Okay, this is a problem. Yeah. I'm really... <laughs> I'm going to table this because we will go on about this, but I'm very flabbergasted that you do not like the Goonies. Yeah, I don't like it. Whatever. Anyway. It's something about it. It's like Temple of Doom. It's too gritty yeah. and nasty for I me. love the Temple of Doom. See, this is what favorite. is wrong with you? Okay, anyway. <laughs> go write an opera about Temple of Doom. I would love that. I do have a comment. Kind of a devil's advocate comment. So I actually do agree completely that I think that doing an opera in English, especially now when I feel like there's kind of a struggle with getting lay people I think it also really depends on the quality of the translation, meaning the composer most likely was very specific about what vowels and, and what type of sounds mm. were occurring on higher pitches. And they're probably very. So you, your translator uh, needs to know what's going on musically and what. Correct. Singers correct. can do. Yeah. But you, you don't speak German. You don't understand one doesn't speak German mm-hmm. or understand German. So if the translation is in English and maybe it's not a great translation, but you can understand it now, isn't that preferable to just basically random syllables? I mean, you maybe you, you can tell it's in German, but mm-hmm. you can't follow it. It, the the syllables, the words, the the phrases, and the sentences don't contain any actual meaning for you. Then, in the context of a show, you mean? So, not yeah, if you're listening yeah, to an if you're listening to a, like an an album of the opera, these singers performing with this orchestra doing a a recording 
That's one thing. But when you need it dramatically, I agree. You do need to have some kind of... It's better to have the immediate context and relationship with it than to be reading all the time. That being said, I don't think that we should be doing that 100% of the time because there's obviously some merit to hearing it in its original intended idiom. Monty Python, Holy Grail. Idiom! (laughs) Please tell me you like that movie. Idiom, sir! I I love the movie. Okay, good. We found one that we agree on. I think that's a really good point, though, that you, Spencer, are making about does it matter? Because then it comes down to what purpose is it serving? The narrative Mm -hmm. versus the musical side of it. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I think I would agree that doing the opera in the native language is typically preferable for a live show. Recording, maybe, like you mentioned, well, could be a little different where you're primarily focusing on the musical elements, where you might already know right. the story and you're just listening to see how it was originally written. That's, I mean, if we go back to Spencer's point about the um, Shakespeare on a pager, Shakespeare's translated into mm-hmm. every language on the face of the earth and then performed in quite a few of those. People aren't going to watch Shakespeare and not understand it. So it's not like this libretto is worthless just because it's been translated. Mm-hmm. I mean, something I've, I've always thought was was weird is why would it be weird to listen to Macbeth in English, translated into English? I mean, it was written in English, and then Verdi got an Italian translation, wrote it in the wrong language, <laughs> and now we have to listen to that in Italian. That's a that's a, that's a good point. So why would that be weird? <laughs> I mean, I know, I know the singer folk like to go on about the, the, the syllables and, and what I, I think Verdi wrote it in Italian because he was Italian. And I, I wonder if he would care that, that it was translated in English. Oh, I don't think he would. He was a money guy. I mean, he was also a very artistic person who cared a lot about a lot of things, but he also knew how to put together a show and sell it. Here's a question, though. If we're going to talk about old language versus new, like for Shakespeare. I do my Domino's orders in, in Italian. Well, yeah, pepperoni. Yeah. The point that I was going to say, but it was interesting when you mentioned Shakespeare because they do have like the Spark Notes version where I remember reading the left page was the original English and the right page was the description. Yeah. So I feel like even with a native. It was like, hey, bruh, listen. Because <laughs> they did that with the movies, isn't there? Like a is the Claire Danes version in the original? Oh, no, I think it is. I the think Claire it's the Danes version is the original. <laughs> Wait, and anyone who tells you otherwise is mm. ill-informed. Yeah. You mean Romeo plus Juliet? Is that what you're talking? I about? I do think that might be what I'm talking yeah, about. That because I know they did a movie that was in God, like modern that steaming vernacular. pile of crap. Holy God. I actually I think they did the Claire Danes version. That's what we're talking about, right? The, I don't know. I'm I think thinking they did that in the, the original. one with Leonardo in it. Yeah, I yeah. think that was the original. The uh, only good language. thing about that is Herb that Radiohead song. Leguizamo. <laughs> Who is he? My favorite. Who's John Leguizamo? No, I, I mean like in the movie. Oh, he. Um, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. If I remember, he's one it of right. the side guys. He's he one of was... the. Okay, hang on. <laughs> Let's get back to translations okay. of stuff. <laughs> Now, uh, speaking of Baz Luhrmann's gross commercialism, uh, it's interesting to me oh. that 
the Met doesn't seem to have a problem presenting things in translation when they know they can put it on at tourist season for some reason. Like the Magic Flute, they've got an English version ready to go for the holidays when there's more people in town. They do... Is mm-hmm. Hansel and Gretel in translation? They do it in English. I, I think they do it in English. That, Not that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's interesting that they're okay to do it sometimes for certain things. Yeah. But it seems like it's only at certain times when they can kind of make extra money from it and not mm. presenting it kind of 50-50, which I think would be a little bit more more genuine. Well, it would mm. seem come across as a little bit more of a genuine pursuit if they uh, did it more regularly instead of just with the things that can be for your kids. And their families who pay to bring seven of those kids. Oh, kids, no moderation. Kids, that's a whole separate. They're not paying attention. That's not true. I shouldn't say that. There are probably kids that very much enjoy. No, no, I I don't think it's because the kids aren't paying attention. I think it's because the Met thinks that they can make extra money by pulling in people who aren't their typical music donor. Well, they're going to have to. That's the problem. I know, but why not just do it all the time and appeal to more people in general? That might be practical because they really need to boost the audience. I mean, it is more work if a singer obviously has to learn the the part twice in English and in... Well, you know, not if, not if the, if, if the paradigm changes and we just do English more in the 19th century, it was a lot more common to do operas in English. And there were a lot of English companies and they were all focused on selling tickets to the middle class. Um, Madam Butterfly was premiered in English in the U S the U S premiere was in English. I mean. Yeah, it was presented by Henry Savage's New English Opera Company. And they, right. it was, I don't think it was, you know, the premier performance in the U.S. I think it just happened to be the first mm-hmm. time it was brought over. Well, he, he had an English company mm-hmm. and they did Grand Opera. And there were a few other companies who did that too. And they all, they were actually accused, uh, what you were just saying of, about uh, about the Met, they were accused of of being um, putting money first, and right? Which is which is the funniest thing. But if they're doing it all the time, it seems to me that they could be bringing the music to more people. It's my my issue isn't that they're doing it to make money. You have to make money. It seems odd to me that the Met is just doing it with the operas that are the equivalent of the Radio City Rockettes show at Christmas. They're not doing it with the ones... You know, a lot of people like to go see Don Giovanni, but they're not doing Don Giovanni in English. They're doing it just for the ones that get the tourist crowd to come in during the Christmas season. It's it's Mm -hmm. tantamount to the the nutcracker around the holidays. Exactly. And they, they market it the same. I mean, that's what it is. I just... I guess it's right. not it's wrong it's not wrong that they're doing that. I wish that they would do that same thing so that they could get more people to enjoy it across the board. Mm-hmm. Well, to clarify, we're also saying that not just English, basically native language, meaning if a, any country True. Yeah. I just, just this I, is my experience cuz I'm a New York person. Uh, yeah. so if if we lived in Buenos Aires, I would say, "Man, I wish that the opera house here would do a little bit more." In Portuguese. Yeah. And that was a thing that was commented on a lot toward the end of the 19th century when there were these, there were, there were a whole bunch of English language opera companies in the 19th century. And it was even more commonplace is my understanding to have an opera company 
that would do stuff in, in whatever the n- native language was. I mean, the German National Opera was doing stuff in German and Italian and Italian, and here we had opera in English. Um, until the end of the 19th century, there was this paradigm, which is the paradigm that persists today, which is that the opera in English that is marketed toward middle-class people who don't have $400 to throw down on an orchestra seat. That is not real opera. I can't name an opera company, an English opera company today. I know there are a few. Oh, you're saying that's the way it was. That's the way it was, but that's the way it is now. I think everyone looks down on doing opera in English, doing translations, right? the, The assumption is that real opera is at the Met, and it's really expensive, and it has stars, and it's in whatever the original language is. And, like, Kansas City English Opera, I don't, I don't know if they have an opera company. If they are doing stuff in English, it's you know, like that's a for local the thing or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's for, the, that's for the dilettantes. I mean, it could be. I was looking this up in 2010, before City Opera closed, everybody crossed themselves. In 2010, City Opera did intermezzo in English. Um, so I don't think there was a lack of interest or enthusiasm in it. I think it, it's just something more what you said. The Met doesn't do that. So I, I think people are afraid to admit that they, they would rather listen to opera in English. And just to clarify, there is uh, a Kansas City Opera. It's the Lyric Opera of Kansas City. So shout out to the Lyric Opera oh. of Kansas City. The f- I, I think it's so f- I think it's so funny that people would be accused of opportunism by marketing to the middle class to people who specifically don't have hundreds of dollars to throw down on an orchestra seat. Oh, I agree. But that's true. Th- and that's but that's exactly what was happening a hundred years ago, and that's why a lot of these opera companies ended up closing. Like the Sa- the Savage Opera Company that closed in like 1911, they couldn't sell the tickets because it's marketed to the middle and lower classes with affordable tickets. They they couldn't afford stars, so it basically ended up being panned universally by critics as something that is just kind of like trash opera. It's not real opera. It's for the lay people. So it came it's across as like a vaudeville folk. group doing an opera. Right. The yeah. real opera, not the opportunists, is for the people in New York City and the people who wear mink coats who can donate <laughs> $5,000, you know, in addition to their ticket. And those people aren't money-grubbing. So I think from the biggest thing with the translation, the point that I'd want to make the most um, doing operas in English versus in their original language is that it really comes down to a class divide. Hmm. More, more than the syllabic structure or whatever the composers intended with their specific languages. I think that's They evident. said their language the best they could. Yeah, it's evident in the mm-hmm. fact that everyone said the language that they spoke. Verdi um, was... Well, is that true? I mean, there's definitely some examples of composers setting things in not their native language. What's yes, but almost always that had to do with the, the influence of a, uh, the like yeah the commissioner. Mm-hmm. It was it was never someone saying, "What language is best going to suit this story?" 
You never hear about some... I, so I started in German, and then I realized, this is an Italian opera. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a, fair point. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, what if there's a native language that is not easily set? Like Klingon? Like Klingon. What do you do in those scenarios? Do I you mean, default to... Here's the thing. Every culture has a language that they speak, and every culture also makes music. I don't think there's a culture on earth that does not have music. Mm -hmm. So therefore people are obviously singing in that language. I'm just wondering like, what do you do in certain scenarios that doesn't, it doesn't always resolve by setting in a native language. I think you have to do both. Well, I think in the U S what you should do is have an English setting and the original. And that way you can offer both to your audiences for people who are less familiar with the drama and want to have the full experience and get it all at once that's available to them. And for people who already know the drama and want to hear the original musical ideas as they were originally put down by the composer Mm -hmm. who are really into that authentic musical experience then that's there too. I think those are the two, good to me, those mm. are the two things that are offered by those two options. One yeah. is the original intent of the composer, but you're detached from it, but you get to really live in the music as it was supposed to be. And in the vernacular version, you get to get closer to what the opera as a whole is. Cause mm. that's the thing with opera. It's not just the music. It's not just the staging. It's not just the sets. It's everything, mm-hmm. which I, I understand why people would want, that if they already know the plot and they're familiar with the different iconic moments in say Labo M or something like that. But for somebody who's just getting into this and wants to explore it, that's when an English translation or a vernacular translation might be a really good thing for an opera company to offer. Cause if somebody goes in and has this transcendent experience in the opera house, they're like, that was amazing. They're going to come back. Those mm-hmm. people who really understood what was happening immediately and deeply are going to enjoy it more and say, I want to go do this again and I want to bring someone with me and I want to tell people about it. As opposed to even if you appreciate the drama while you're reading along with the teleprompter thing, you're going to go, I really I liked it. Yeah, it was it was good. And you're going to have that kind of a reaction Who's as opposed to be. I don't know. It was just my little um, that's a, no that's a good point but though. you're just yeah. gonna, you're gonna go i appreciate that it was good you're not gonna go oh my god i have this new thing that i love yeah i think that's fair i i yeah. definitely am in the camp that i think the more accessible you can make it the better yeah. and i think that uh the solution is just to write everything in esperanto perfect so there that we go is the well universal done. language we, we have solved yeah. the problem that's right now it'd be another thing if you wanted to do everything in spanish i mean that's practically america's secondary language but the mm-hmm. fact that we're going to do everything in whatever the language that it was written so in cool. do you think that we i mean we didn't even bring this up English. which shame on us hmm. do you think that it, speaking about putting on these kinds of productions that we should be focusing on doing both putting on english and spanish productions oh, i'd love it I think I it would, would be great. It. I didn't oh, even. I, I, I feel bad. I didn't even think of it. But there's yeah, a huge justification a for doing stuff in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think that'd be awesome. Whatever opera company takes this up because they listen to us. Yeah. Uh, listen up. Yeah, listen. 
they, I think, would do immensely well for yeah. themselves. Couldn't there be a logistical issue to doing a, a great many English translations, though, because you have singers who have been trained for many years. They know these parts already, at least in the back of their heads, oh, so that sure. they're familiar with the text, and then they have to relearn it all? I think or that just, it, you're a professional, I think that they'll you just should have it. the caliber to, to yeah. relearn it. If the, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't mean that in any light way. Yes, you're, com- you're right. I just feel that if that were to become a policy, people would like get used to professional it. Professional singers would... Fairly easily be able to relearn it in the English, especially if they already knew what the Italian or German was already saying. I think then it would be really easy to switch it to English. So. But singers have expressed to me that they've, they've turned down or reluctantly accepted uh, roles that were going to be in English. Oh, so you're putting uh, in a lot of investment that you're not going to be able to... Uh, right. I think reuse. a friend of mine was saying that with regard to a Giovanni production, that they were going to do... Don Giovanni, but it was in English, and they felt like, so I'm basically learning a new opera that I'm only going to play once. Oh, that's really interesting. I feel like the more I mean, if you ever do a new opera, I feel like that same this, thing this, could yeah. come into play. doesn't do a lot of new Well, opera. I feel like the more languages you know an opera in, it only makes you more versatile to do it again. I mean, I can understand the point of if he thinks it's a one-off, but I feel like that only makes you a stronger performer if yeah. you can say, well, I can sing this in multiple languages. I saw someone post recently complaining about Hansel and Gretel being done in English. They were complaining They were complaining. The person said, can we please stop doing Hansel and Gretel in English? It should only be done in English if it's a children's outreach concert or whatever. Why did this person care? What? No, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not like, I mean, is this person really sitting there going, now I can only see Hansel and Gretel 12 times instead of 14 this season. But there is the elitism. There is the elitism (laughs) in music and opera. That is where the elitism reveals itself. When you look at an English production of something, which most people in America would be able to understand versus the German, which only people in America who speak German can understand and say... You should sit through the German. And See, if you don't, you're a Philistine. That makes me so frustrated. I think that that actually ties into a much bigger issue outside of translation. Is this, like You're mentioning elitism, and I think that there should be no place for elitism in the arts. Uh, I, just, I think that the whole point is art is reflecting culture and society, and then if you're, you're saying this, but only for a few people, then that's just stupid. There's stupid people everywhere. <laughs> there is there. <laughs> There's one at this table. It's me. Oh, there might be more than one. <laughs> let me let me let me lob this one out there. I think at least half of all opera perf- performances in America and in New York should be in English. I like I that you separated New York from America. It's separated by the East River. <laughs> <laughs> And it should be separated. And a lot of liberal ideals. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, we have we have a whole you know I don't know five hundred feet of water separating us from the moon faced mongrels, and <laughs> that is. Um, okay, so you think half the uh, at least half at least half. at least half, probably more. The more I consider this, the more silly I think it is that we are so adamant about having 
a national opera company not do stuff in English? All of the companies that uh, purport to make opera more accessible by, like, you know, setting cozy in, like, a restaurant freezer or, you know, whatever crazy (laughs) places that they set operas in, they never do it in English or in Spanish. I mean... Well, they would then have to hire a translator. I mean, unless they were... I mean, every one of the... Every one of the, the classic pieces of repertoire has an English translation. Already. It's... I mean, I think a lot of them need need work. Do you think that these smaller companies should then take liberties with it and adjust the libretto? Sure. I mean, I think it's 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 really their um, their duty to do that. But I think that's if they were sincere in their desire to make opera more accessible, their goal would be to put on English opera and create the perception that it's not somehow a musical or artistic sacrifice by listening to it in English. Mm-hmm. That's a great point because that sets up an expectation that you're saying that we're, well, we're going to water this down so you can enjoy it better. And that's kind of <laughs> not the point. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to put on a show for all you morons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not the best attitude to take with your audience. <laughs> Listen up. F- <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> cool. All right, that's it. That's episode one in the can. Woohoo! Um, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast. We're definitely coming out with more of these episodes very soon. And don't be afraid to give us a rating. Uh, but if it's going to be a bad rating, just uh, stop playing now. And, and Do be afraid them. to give us that rating. Yeah. In the meantime, enjoy this new recording of Epistola Number 1. Uh, Ivan's new piece that's premiering on September 20th at the Domena Center here in New York. We'll be there. We hope to see you there. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs>